Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on the Marketers Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct to Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Extraordinary. Something's got a hold on me. I get this feeling I'm in motion, a certain sense of liberty. The chances are we've gone too far. You took my time and you took my money. Now I feel you've left me standing in a world that's so demanding. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now floating in Scream Celica. My name's Boise, and I am joined by Paul John Dykes tonight in the absence of Kevin Graham. And I'm delighted to say we were able to pinch his DeLorean for the night, Paul. 
It's always a pleasure, Boise. I thought you were going to introduce me as Dykesy, the Boise and Dykesy show. Uh, because I, I think the last time I was called that was probably the year that we're going to be going back to tonight. Yeah. So it all ties in. Tears to Kev Graham for a shot of his time-travelling machine. Uh, yeah. I've got one eye on the England-Germany game. But mm-hmm. I won't let that take me away from the focus tonight. And what a focus is, because I've had to figure out my own head why I was into the record that I chose for tonight. So yes. I'm delighted. It all ties in. England have just taken the lead, by the way. Oh. Um, Sterling has scored. So there we go. Hi. So, yes, we are going back to 1994. The song that I was uh, doing in spoken word in the absence of Kev Graham was True Faith 94 by New Order. Love that tune every time the drums start with it, man. Right at the beginning, I'm like, um, good bass line, gets me going. But aye, so the football, we go to Ibrox, the 30th of April, 1994. It was what you would look back on as a, a difficult period, we can say, for the mighty hoops. Um, whilst there was a juggernaut across the road being bankrolled by who knows. But it was all uh, very much at that time, Rangers going for... Uh, title win, I believe, on the, the match that we were watching, if they had uh, been victorious. But a performance that I think Celtic uh, can be very proud of looking back when you're considering the, I don't want to be too harsh, but probably it was a bit of a mismatch, I think, the two the two sort of sides in terms of the youth that we've had to opt for, um, in terms of where the club is at that point in time. Um, a real period of transition, which you know is a, a bit of a, a bit of a word that's getting used a lot just now yeah. um, in the the world of Celtic. And Lou McCarry as a manager, so obviously going back to 1994 was not my, you know, you know it's not my strongest football in memories. It's when I probably I would always put 1994 as the year I got the football bug, and that was predominantly down to. The World Cup in 1994, I've kind of alluded mm. to that on screen myself a few times. For whatever reason, it all just made sense. Um, and I was a diehard football fan thereafter. So I'm interested to get your thoughts, Paul, on where the club was at this time. And then I'm going to go, we're going to go through the lineups at some point as well. But just a sort of overview, first and foremost, from yourself as to the state of Celtic's mind at this point in time. Listen, you've gone back to a period of my life, Russell, right, that I I still look back fondly on. So I would have been 15 years of age at this point. I had started going to the games, as I've mentioned a few times on Axom, obviously so that the bus convener will invite me on his podcast at a later date. I started going to the games (laughs) in 1987. And uh, so the first season that I had enjoyed was the centenary season. And I just kind of thought, well, this is what it's all about. And then we went into this dark period in the club's history. Now, uh, this was on the back of the takeover, this game. So when I think back, there's a load, there's a load of things I think about. I look at that Celtic kit, and it's just a, a t- it's such an archetypal Umbro kit because it's got the big Umbro uh, shading, yeah, all the way through the hoops. Yeah, and then the Rangers kit is the ultimate Adidas kit. Because it had the stripes on, which, by the way, I'm sorry to admit, it was a cracking design of a kit. Not that particular one. I mean, I like the Marseille one, the France Sweden. one that Canton at, Sweden, Liverpool. You know, they yeah. had the, the three stripes and it was a cracking design. So there was that whole thing. But as a Celtic fan, where were we as a club? It was a time of 
looking ahead. I went on that summer to get my first season ticket. So wow. again, the boss oh. convener might invite me on his podcast when he launches it. Um, my first season ticket. And I remember I mentioned this other day, just by chance, that World Cup was really uh, interesting for a few points for me. Scotland weren't in it. And uh, as I've said before, whenever there's a tournament in Scotland aren't in it, uh, even when they are in it, I support the Republic of Ireland. And that was at that moment where you felt that the Republic of Ireland couldn't beat anybody. You know, and we're going to the States and there was that whole thing on the sidelines with John Aldridge and Jack Charlton when Jack Charlton was trying to bring Aldridge on and uh, the camera, then the mics were still up. You heard every word that came out of Aldridge's That's mouth. Right. He was a great striker and I loved him at Celtic. He scored so many goals for Liverpool and Tranmere, Oxford, Real, Sociedad. Uh, so I was hooked. I was totally hooked on football. But that World Cup was interesting for a few reasons. So in the final, at half time, in the final, the World Cup final, when it went to the adverts, Russell, Celtic had an advert for Celtic season tickets. And you just knew this was different gravy. This wasn't the board of old. This was Fergus McCann knowing about marketing, knowing about branding. And you, you knew that we were going to go into a completely different era. I think... Many Celtic fans felt after the takeover that it would be like the switch of a button and everything would be fine. We quickly realised that wasn't going to be the case because no. we had a really poor, a generally poor kind of squad with a poor manager and a dreadful stadium. Uh, but there was still optimism. So the, the, the big thing about this was the Celtic fans were, were shut out of Ibrox on this particular day. Yes. Now, a few Celtic fans were at the game. I would love to speak to the guys on a Celtic state of mind someday. A few Celtic fans made it in somehow. And Celtics fans um, decided to fly a plane over the ground with, obviously, the message for the players. And there are people out there watching this podcast who will know who was responsible for that. I heard it was people from the kind of Falkirk area. So if you're in right. the comments section and you know better than that, please tell us because it's far too late now for anybody to get into trouble. Uh, but there was that whole thing about the fact that we were banned and why we were banned. Yes. Uh, straight away, David Murray had messed with the wrong man in Fergus McCann and there was various things that happened uh, in the years after that. And I think that when you look at the demise of Rangers, you knew that McCann had won that battle. Um, yeah, you know, won the war. significant. Absolutely. You're, no, you're right, actually. Murray might have won that wee battle. McCann won the war. But yeah, I always think back on it being like an Umbro versus Adidas thing because of the kits. Because obviously, when you're that age and uh, 15 years of age, saving up my paperboy money for yep. my, my season ticket. And I remember the ticket itself, because I was under 16 when I bought it, was 95 quid. £95. And it came in a white. Uh, season ticket wallet with that kind of Celtic Celtic writing that was still used in the superstore and it was a great time in my life mate because yeah. I finally felt I was going to the games myself I didn't get that, that season ticket with the old guy the old man started taking me to the games but by that time as I've explained before he's working all over the place and I yeah. went through I went through to Glasgow on my own on uh, Jockey Munion's Blair Hall bus uh, God rest him so uh, great great times for me it was a coming of age for me that kind of period no, totally not. It's good to get all the background as well, just not only from, from Celtic's point of view, but from obviously yours as a, you know, sort of a new breed of supporter, you could say, you know. Uh, yes. um, I wonder if Pat McGinley had an issue with you at that point in time, the same way Neil Lennon does with the new breed <laughs> of fans now. Um, well, look at the lineups, right? Because I think 
there was a few players. I watched the full 25-minute YouTube highlights that were on today. Uh, Jerry McNee commentating. And a couple of fresh faces I've seen that really, really stuck out. So we'll go through the Celtic team. And we've got Pat Bonner in goals. Smith, Martin, Grant, Mowbray, Mark McNally, Pat McGinley. Uh, how do you pronounce the Polish guy's name? Because I can never remember. But... Just call him Shuggy. Shuggy, right. Aye, Shuggy uh, Dovchek. <laughs> Shuggy Dovchek. <laughs> Simon Donnelly, Willie Faulkner and John Collins. Now, yeah. there's a few names that stick out. Pat Bonner still being the number one. And what an assured display he put in, by the way. Mm-hmm. He's probably... And we'll get to it. But he's probably the unluckiest player on the pitch, I think, by the end of the, in that match because he did not deserve to leave with anything but three points. But Mark McNally stuck out to me, Paul John Dykes, because I um, I was brought up sporting Celtic and my second team was always still in Albion. Mm-hmm. Now, due to locality as a youngster, and I think my dad was a bit conscious at times, to be honest with you, of getting me too involved at a young age of the you know, the whole Celtic Rangers stuff, you know, that goes on and all the nonsense that can come with it. I think, um, I remember Mark McNally playing for the Pinos. Yep. Uh, when he was, I think, 28, he joined. So it wasn't even like he was a, an ageing veteran. He played for the Pinos for three or four seasons as the regular first-choice centre-back. So it was interesting to think that he was at the, you know, at the front of the coalface for Celtic in times where... There was a lot of quality out there, you know, to, that you were coming up against when you were playing your rivals. And he was trusted in that. Obviously, Tony Mowbray, because we all know he came back as manager later on. We all know that was the era where the huddle was created. Yep. Um, and I thought the display of Barry Smith was very interesting because not only did it look in the 25 minutes, he had a right, right assured display at right back. I would always remember him as being a, a fan of football probably a bit later and knowing all the players in each squad, Barry Smith, I would always associate as Dundee's captain. That mm-hmm. completely bypassed me that he'd played for Celtic. So that was an interesting one. And then, of course, you look at Simon Donnelly up front. And I know you've met Sid numerous times. So Donnelly at 19 then, mm-hmm. I obviously don't remember what the the hype would have been like around Simon Donnelly in that era. So it's quite good to pick your brain on this one as well because Donnelly is a weapon up front for us in this match. He is dynamite. He has a great game. And I just wonder, who were the sort of comparisons that were getting made with Donnelly at that time coming through? Because I know they will be inevitable. I'm just oh, not yeah. sure who the comparisons would have been. Well, it's interesting that you, you mentioned the kind of youth element of that team because yeah. Celtic were really relying on bringing in and often... Uh, substandard players I've got to say players that that weren't really ready for the first team now you mentioned and I'll run through them because it's a good point about Donnelly Donnelly was a bit of a favourite for me um, back in those times so I seen him coming in you know I seen his debut and of course there was the whole McCarry thing that I'll talk about as well but we'll start off with Barry Smith so Barry Smith like you say totally synonymous with his career at Dundee Um, I had the opportunity about a year ago to interview him on a Celtic State of Mind so check that out on the YouTube channel Um, and Barry Smith was one of these guys that came in he was probably thrown in at the deep end because we were a struggling side you know and Tommy Burns played him the following season as well at Hamden Russell and uh, he played a few games and he was a right back and you kind of thought that we, you know, he might 
he might turn into a, a first time team regular. It wasn't to be right. highly, highly rated as a as a youth player. Um, but as you say, he made his name at Dundee. Um, Mark McNally. That's a that's a strange one for me because when I think of McNally again, I seen his debut season under Liam Brady uh, and I remember he scored against Hearts on the same day that Tony Cascarino scored his first goal for Celtic at Celtic Park and I remember him wearing a white headband in the Scottish Cup final in 1995 which was you know if your name's not John McEnroe don't try it and he used to wear arrow football boots remember arrow arrow football boots honestly mate I can see the arrow font right now. It was like sort of italics, chunky, uh, chunky sort of letters on it. I remember it. Arrow. Um, terrible plastic football boots. And he it was sponsored by them. He used to appear in the shoot magazine advertising the arrow boots. And uh, I mean, he was there, obviously, for a few seasons after this particular game. But here's a thing a lot of people might not know, is that he recorded a record in America. No. Mark McNally did. He did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you. And it might have been, it may actually have been, I'm trying to remember when the next time would have been that we went to America. We went to America and he recorded a record with none other than Neely Mockin Jr. And they went into a recording studio and I think there was a few beverages involved in said record. But Neely can't find his copy, but he recorded that. And I don't know if, if McNally was wearing his headband during the recording of this <laughs> single. But that's what I remember when I think of McNally. Then, of course, you'll get on to uh, the substitutes that came on. We, uh, McLaughlin came in. Uh, he came on that day for Ma- McGinley. Brian McLaughlin, just a wee guy, and uh, Simon Dornley. So when he came in, I'm no joking, he, he came onto the scene and he was the next big thing. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we were crying out for a hero back then. And he made his debut, I think, against Hibbs as a substitute at Easter Road. He then burst onto the scene, scored a couple of goals against Wraith Rovers. And Lou McCary made the, the ultimate mistake by saying that he reminded he reminded him of his old teammate, Kenny Dalglish. And that's the worst thing you can do sometimes for a player. So I remember people um, likening Brian McLaughlin to Jimmy Johnston. You never do yes. that. You never, ever do that. Uh, and quite recently, John Hughes saying that Leo Held uh, reminded him of Virgil van Dijk. I mean, come on. You don't do that, yeah. right? So Donnelly, I think, did he suffer? Well, the following season, he didn't score a single goal. The whole Hamden season, Simon Donnelly did not score a goal. Um, so it was a, it was the, the, the end of this season. It, high, high hopes. People were calling uh, Donnelly the next Al Gleish and all that kind of stuff. It didn't transpire, but still a very, very handy player, very useful player. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually bought Donnelly from Queen's Park. So he started right. off at Queen's Park and then we brought him in and he was put on the ground staff. Um, so there was a crop of youngsters coming through at that time. Maybe not the same quality as the 1980s kind of young players that were yep. coming through Russell, but we were in a situation where we had to play them. But I've always, I've always argued this case. So in the 1950s, know that I remember that, I'm old, but know that old. Celtic occasionally, if they needed money, they would sell a player. And often yeah. the player had been reared by the club. So in order to install our first set of floodlights at Celtic Park, we sold Willie Fernie to Middlesbrough. It's, it's always how Celtic operated. We sold Bobby Collins. You know, we sold all our best players. Into the 60s and we sold Paddy Crerand. You know, there was always a big name leaving the club. The Quality Street Gang, Davy Hay, 
Lou McCary, who's now our manager at this stage, mm-hmm. uh, Kenny Dalgleish, you go into the 1980s and it's Charlie Nicholas and it's Brian McClare and the goal scorer today was to leave but we didn't get any money for him, uh, John Collins. But basically what happened was a lot of the players, not all of them, a lot of them, we produced them and then we sold them. So we're making big, big money on the youth Kenny prospects. We didn't have that in the 90s. You know, mm. there w- we didn't have that same conveyor belt of young players. And there might have been a time where the Celtic board, and I'm sure they would have been tempted to sell Paul McStay, just to balance the books, because by the late 80s and early 90s, we were skint. And I'm pretty yeah. sure there would have been a, a case, you know, if, if you were to go to the bank for them to say, well, you're in debt, you've had a £3 million bid for Paul McStay from Everton, I think it was, you're going to have to sell him. Uh, bearing in mind there was a two million pound bid from Juventus in 1983 for him, so mm-hmm. you know he was probably valued a, a lot higher. But Celtic needed the money, and I think this is typical of the kind of youth or the youngsters that were coming through at that time at Celtic. Um, another one who was there or thereabouts was Brian O'Neill. Brian O'Neill had come through the ranks as well. He had played in the World Cup final for the under 16s in 1989, introduced mm-hmm. to the team by Liam Brady. Yep. Um, I think he made his debut against Spurs on the same day that Mark Donaghy made his debut. See all these great names of Celtic past. But um, yeah, the youth players, no disrespect to the three that's been mentioned, they weren't of the same kind of quality that we were used to in the 1980s, Russell. That was a big issue for Celtic because we used to have players in the 80s like McStay and Charlie Nicholas um, and we could produce them. And then yeah. we went through a period where we just were not producing them. And we certainly weren't selling them because the quality wasn't there. No, I totally understand where you're coming from with that. We were talking about... It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Youth players coming through, and there was one that stuck out for me in the opposition lineup Mm. I brought that day, and that is because he obviously went on to spend, I think it was around 18 months at Celtic later in his career. And that had been none other than a fresh-faced Stephen Presley, yeah. who I believe was only 20 years old in this game. Um, and Presley was an interesting one because, see, when he signed for Celtic, for someone like myself, there was just no biggie for me at all because, like, see, when Kenny Miller signed for Celtic, I didn't mind anyway, to be honest with you. But what I, I remember thinking, wow, that's a big deal because... I associate him with a Rangers shirt growing up. Presley, I'd never seen play for Rangers. My interpretation was he was just a youth player there who never really got a game. And then lo and behold, I'm watching the footage uh, today, the 25 minutes of the match, and there's, I'm like, that's Stephen Presley. Yeah. You could tell. And he actually does a, a, a classic collision with um, 
uh, David Robertson and, and just get subbed off, I think, two seconds later. Because <laughs> <laughs> David Robertson gives him pelters. But just what was your take then when Presley, I know we're fast forwarding a bit, but when he joined for Celtic, when he's joined Celtic, you know, from Hearts, mm-hmm. at that point in time, was that like seen in the same light as the Kenny Miller one? Because the Kenny Miller one was a bit of a big deal. Well, the Presley thing, it's like you say, you know, your point of reference, I guess. So I remember him coming through as a young player at, at Ibrox. And I remember that time, and it was all about, you know, Rangers at that point were lording it over Celtic and, and the rest of Scottish football. And I remember around about this time, it might have been in the pre-season following this game, actually, or maybe the pre-season leading up to this season. They had an Ibrox tournament, Russell, you know, and they invited teams like Sampdoria and Manchester United. It was all played over a, a kind of four-day period at Ibrox. Uh, you know, because they were just chucking money at these clubs. You can get any club you want to come and play a friendly. you just got to pay them. Yeah. You know, and some of the big clubs are expensive. And, uh, you know, fast forward a wee while late, later and Murray's great friend Gavin Masterton was able to get Arsenal up to East End Park and play a friendly way with Dunfermline. It, it was mental. David Murray probably paid for it, to be fair. And... Stephen Presley came through and I remember him marking Ryan Giggs out the game. These games were live on the telly, Russell. Mental. Wow. The, the Ibrox tournament or something it was called. Yeah. Right. And they're just lording it over us and buying players like Trevor Stephen and all this kind of stuff. And then selling them and then buying them back for Marseille. Uh, I think there's a reason he was called Tricky Dicky. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Tricky Dicky, the football agent, aye. So, yeah, Presley, although he was a Rangers player, I never ever felt he was really established yeah. in the team. And I, I just remember him far more, because he's from Manicure Woods. He went to Inverkeith in high school in Fife. Okay. I just associate him as a jambo. I associate him uh, being part of the Rickert in three with Craig Gordon and Paul Hartley. Um, I've seen him fairly recently. I say fairly recently. I'm talking in the last four or five years. And he was walking on the road from Inverkeith to, or from Dalgetty Bay to Inverkeith. I think his folks live in Dalgetty Bay. And he's he's wearing a hearts, a hearts, uh, woolly hat. You know what I mean? So I think when he left Rangers, he went to Coventry. Went to Coventry yep. City. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I know he had a spell at Dundee United, but I always think of him as a jambo. I really do. So when he signed, I was more, I didn't rate him a great deal as a player. I was more looking at his ability rather than the fact that he played with Rangers uh, many, many years before. I remember watching a game live on Sky one night and uh, Presley had started growing his hair and he had this big beard and all the rest of it. And Charlie Nicholas um, said at halftime, Steve Presley should go for a haircut, have a shave and come out as a footballer in the second half. I thought it was quite a good quote. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Brutal, but it's good. If we get to the game... Where's my take from it? I appreciate I didn't watch the full 90 minutes. It was a 25-minute uh, extended highlights thing on YouTube, which was still gave you a good sort of feel for what was happening. I mean, some of the... I think for the, the Ireland game that Kev gave us, there was 1 minute 11 seconds of footage from the England-Ireland game. I thought, Kev, in 1988, I wasn't even one, and I've got a minute's worth of the game. He goes, you'll be fine. <laughs> I thought, fair enough. So 25 minutes... Um, 25 minutes of action for this. And the vibe I got, and you'll know better than me, was Rangers played a heck of a lot of long balls. Mm-hmm. And a lot of crosses from a very deep area, which could also be, you could describe as a long ball. And I found the football that I was seeing from them, for a team that, as you say, was lording it over, I actually thought a lot of the football seemed quite one-dimensional. And now yep. that's not really 
what I would associate with them with the uh, the nine in a row era because I'm maybe more my brain would go to Gascoigne to Loudrop and players like that and there probably was a heck of a lot more football in the deck getting played by then but in this performance I found it very one dimensional and, and Pat Bonner wait, I know we, we, we spoke about him at length the other week anyway so I don't want to but Kev said he never remembered Pat Bonner having a particularly good game for Celtic well it's funny because he doesn't do anything spectacular in this game, but there is an assurance about him that every ball that goes in, he's just so calm. Just comes and collects the ball with real authority, makes one one decent save that I can remember, wears a fantastic goalie top. Mm-hmm. And I just felt it was meat and drink for, for Pat Bonner that day. I thought that the football was really uninspiring. And if anything, it reminded me of Walter Smith's team when you fast forward, that got to the 2008 UEFA Cup final. It was more cut for that cloth, I felt. And, you know, when, when you look at John Collins, like that in midfield for us, mm-hmm. you know, and what a goal it is he scores, we'll get to that. But you looked at when Celtic were doing, were, were getting possession of the ball, which maybe wasn't as often as Rangers, but when they did, some of the interchange play was always, in my opinion, looked anywhere on the eye. And maybe I'm biased, well, I'm biased, but who cares? I thought they were, they looked a slicker outfit when they had the ball at their feet. They looked like a team that was trying to play the Celtic way, for want of a better term. It did feel as though Celtic's the team that wants to play football here. Rangers are really just hoofing it up to Hately and Jury, hoping for a nod down, hoping for a flick on. Now, there's many ways you can skin a cat, so I'm not going to go overly critical about that. I was just a bit surprised considering the, the financial disparity, the the esteem that they are held upon in, I was a wee bit like, I just find it a wee bit one-dimensional from being completely honest. Well, this is the thing, Russell, and you're, you're spot on. So you've, you've kind of entered this um, game with a fresh set of eyes and a fresh yeah. perspective on it. I'm going to tell you something that Tom Campbell once said to me, and Tom is a fantastic writer. In fact, he, he's often called a historian. He's, he's a brilliant author. You know, there, there are better historians out there who know more than Tom about Celtic. But Cel- but Tom is the best writer of Celtic books. He, he, his style of writing is incredible. And he once said to me that all you need to do with Rangers and Celtic, if you want to talk about style, if you want to talk about what they represent, is you look at their greatest players. <laughs> so what is Rain- who is Rangers' greatest player? John Gregg. What does he represent? And that takes me right back to a, a brilliant quote for Bobby Lennox. When did you realise your leg was broken, Bobby? When I seen John Gregg coming in for the tackle. That was the type of player he was, right? Who's Celtic's greatest ever player? Jimmy Jinky Johnston. Entertaining, jinking around. You know, a, a player who would go to the Bernabeu and have the Real Madrid fans singing ole, ole every time he got the ball. You know, Rangers, it's all about all that kind of stuff, big brawn and all that. Celtic's about entertaining football. Now, the thing is, I'm contradicting myself a wee bit because I've already said that every time a manager comes in and talks about, I'm going to find a football utopia, we're going to play a brand of football, that worries me a wee bit. And that worried me a wee bit about Ange Postacoglu because the last time I heard it was Tony Mowbray. And the last time before Tony Mowbray that I heard it was John Barnes. And you look at the managers that have come in and basically spoke about success. Yeah. Martin O'Neill, Brendan Rodgers, it's about winning. 
add all the fancy bits later, it's about substance over yeah. style. Let's be honest, right? I mean, the Tommy Bond sides, as fantastic as they were to watch, we won one trophy. Yeah. And we cannot go through a period now of years and seasons of no winning. So you're spotting in what you're saying. This was what I would describe from that period, Russell, as a typical Rangers side. Everybody goes on, well, I say everybody, um, people in the media go on about the the Graham Soonis revolution, the Rangers revolution of 1986. It wasn't a revolution. It absolutely was not a revolution. And when you look at the the players that, that Soonis brought in, Terry Butcher, right? So was he a cultured footballer or did he just, you know, um, bite their legs and stick his head wherever the ball was going and, you know, uh, dominate referees. Well, he was a latter. We know that. And you look at that team that he's got there, um, Richard Goff and Dave McPherson, big slim. They're two, two big hoofers, right? And that's exactly what they did. David Robertson was a, would have suited Celtic. He was a good overlapping left-back um, who played really, really well for Aberdeen. About the only player in Scottish football that had the better of him time and time again was wee Joe Miller. And people sometimes wondered why Joe was so good against Rangers. Well, he knew David Robertson because he came through the ranks at Aberdeen together, yeah. they, you know, and he could beat him. Mm-hmm. And he knew that he'd done it so often on the training pitch, uh, Pataudry and all the rest of it. But uh, Robertson was a class, class player. Stuart McCall had the same haircut back then as he does now. That's all I'm going to say about him. Um, <laughs> you've got Presley being replaced by Ukrainian, or oh, sorry, Russian internationalist Alexei Mikhailachenko. You know, it's such an anomaly in Scottish football that you could go out and buy a player, I think at the time, for two and a half million quid. Where did they buy him? Sampdoria. It's just insane. Trevor Stephen, you know, you we're buying England internationals, we're selling them to Marseille, who at the time was run by Bernard Tapping, and we're buying them back and no questions asked. You know what I mean? Back in the day, the gangsters used to use laundrettes for that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. Trevor Stephen was in the team. Ian Ferguson, right? Who, again, he was just a clobber. He was just a clobber. That's all he was. McCoist, uh, absolutely tremendous goal scorer. I don't have the same vitriol towards him as Kevin does. I just hated the fact that he always scored against us. Mark Hately, like you say, play the long ball with Hately and knock it down for McCoist. And Jury was a runner. And interestingly enough, also from Inverkeithen, went to the same school as Stephen right. Presley. But, you know, it was a strong side, Russell, but there wasn't many ball players on that side. No. And even though Celtic side, and I've no mentioned Colin Scott, who was an unusual choice for that particular game, young guy, didn't play many games for Rangers, uh, and he was in goals that day. But the Celtic team at least had a bit of flair. They at least had that. I mean, Simon Donnelly, you already mentioned, uh, John Collins, a supremely, you know, talented player who just played at the wrong time for Celtic. But another one that might surprise you, Darius Dovcek, who we called Shuggy. Now, he was the left-back for Poland in the 1986 World Cup Finals. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was Poland's left-back. He was a tremendous player. I mean, people going about a cultured left foot. Why have you never got a cultured right foot? I never figured oh, that out. So <laughs> but he had I'm a cultured... Booty, <laughs> Are I'm you? Booty, so I take it. Oh, I... So mad. <laughs> I'd so always say 
He's got a wand. Wand of a left foot. A wand of a left Nobody's ever got a wand of a right foot. I don't know what that's all about. Um, but but Dovjek was a player. I mean, what a, a, a footballer he was. With an incredible strike. And we saw that against Rangers in the, new, the, the you know, St Paddy's Day Massacre uh, a few years before. So Celtic were an entertaining side. Rangers were a big, strong side. And I think that that particular game, because we were the underdogs, it suited us. You know, Murray was uh, just using his power to say, we're not going to let you in because you're damaging too many seats at Ibrox. Treating us like the paupers. They always did treat us like you're not coming into our arena and breaking our seats. How many seats were broken at Celtic Park over the years when we when we put the seats in? Unbelievable. They used to take them home as trophies, the Rangers fans. Yeah. You know what I mean? But again, very similarly to what they did, Recently, they didn't just cut our allocation, they banned us from the stadium. So yeah. we went into that game, nobody gave us a hope in hell, Boise, but we took the lead. And that was that was so, so important. But you know what I remember? We're talking about brands, we're talking about Umbro Adidas. I remember the Predator football boots. Yeah, I knew that was coming. Yeah, And, you know, when Collins uh, takes the free kick as well, see the way he strikes the ball, it's quite unusual. Because it almost looks, if you watch it back, it came off... It, he had such a nonchalant sort of style at times. I think when he's hitting it, when he's hitting it, you know, his corner kicks because he hits a few corners in the game as well. And he's uh, and that free kick in particular, it almost looks like he hits it nearly off the side of his toe. It's just mm. such a nonchalant sort of striker of the ball the way he does it. It's really nice, and the bend in the ball is outstanding. And it doesn't matter who they've gotten goals at that point, whether it's Colin Scott, Andy Gorham, or whoever. That ball's only going one place. That's the back of the net. And I think you're absolutely right. You could tell the team grew a wee bit into the game. There was more confidence. There was more one-twos happening in the uh, the middle of the park. They were trying to actually just pass it around. There was there was a point in time where Peter Grant's got the ball dribbling over the halfway line and you're like, whoa, what's happening here, Peter? Um, I just felt that watching it, as you say, on the outside, that the Celtic display offered to me more hope for, for watching a football team than what I would have got, or more inspiration for football than what I was seeing from the other side. And that is obviously through green tinted glasses. There's no two ways about it. Um, just going on to players that you felt were getting signed, that you thought maybe weren't up to scratch, and we're not going to be disrespectful to any of them. There's a chance in the second half, I know we're jumping about the game, it's not structured as Kev Graham's, but... Did you just use the word structured and Kev Graham in the same sentence? I know. He even sends me his big pile of notes to prove to me he does his homework. It's brilliant. Um, there's a chance that falls for Willie Faulkner mm. that is bounced. He's, got, he's, on his left, he's on his left foot and it's bounced and then he should just hit it. This week on The Marketer's Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, direct-to-consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Spring training is right around the corner, so come for the games and have a ball in Arizona. world-class resorts, unbeatable dining and nightlife, amazing scenery, and endless outdoor adventure. Make your visit unforgettable. Plan your getaway at myspringtraining.com.
but he waits and he tries to he actually lets it bounce again and tries to crack on the half volley. Um it's a golden opportunity. And I just wonder if guys again I'm saying it maybe not as in the know, but with guys like Willie Faulkner, maybe this sort of example you're given where players were giving, being brought in who just maybe quite weren't, weren't quite up to the standard we'd be looking for and was that maybe in that sort of moment when you need firstly a nice cool head and secondly you need a bit of, you need better technique to be honest with you. Um, absolutely, absolutely Boise. Absolutely. And again, we're not here to be disrespectful to any no. player. But all you need to do is you look at that side and you ask yourself which of those players were signed by Lou McCary, right? So you've got Lee Martin. He's playing left back. Lee yeah. Martin famously saved Sir Alex Ferguson's job in the 1990 FA Cup final by scoring the winner against mm-hmm. Crystal Palace. But we bring him in, I think it was for like 200 grand. That's the type of player that, that Lou McCary was bringing in. Um, you then look at uh, Willie Faulkner. And you've got to say it yourself as well with, with Willie Faulkner. But I've got to be thankful to Willie Faulkner because the transfer of Willie Faulkner was one of the reasons why uh, the takeover happened because Celtic couldn't pay the second instalment um, of £175,000 to Sheffield United. And that that then was a, a warning sign to the bank. And the bank was saying, well, if you can't pay £175,000, there's a problem here. So the transfer of Willie Faulkner was actually pivotal in the eventual takeover by That's Fergus McLan. I know. Now, the thing with Faulkner is, he'd come through the ranks again uh, at Aberdeen. And if you want to look at the timeline, he would have uh, played alongside the likes of Joe Miller and David Robertson. Then he goes down south and he does pretty well with a few clubs down there. Uh, I always remember him playing for Middlesbrough. Uh, he would have played down at Middlesbrough with the likes of Bernie Slavin, Derek White, Chris Morris. Um, we bought him for Sheffield United. And the following season, we relied quite a bit on Willie Faulkner we relied on him in my first season ticket uh, holding season 94-95 and I don't know if this is on YouTube uh, Boise but check it out he scores a goal at Hamden against Motherwell who eventually joined he eventually joined and in my mind he scored it for about 40 yards right and it was the outside of the right boot and this thing if you thought Collins free kick bent this thing bent like a Carlos free kick Against right. Motherwell. But the thing is, back then, I mean, my mind's playing tricks on me. Uh, that was uh-huh. a long time ago. Have a look, though. He scores again. And we were singing at Hamden, Ooh, ah, Willie Falconer, right? And <laughs> it, it wasn't the first time. It wasn't the first time. And I remember him also playing a big part in the semi final of the Scottish Cup that took us to uh, the game against Airdrie. It was a replayed game against Hibs at Ibrox, as it happens. Both games happened within a week. One of them was midweek. Yeah, you, yep. you had to be really, really quick back then to apply for your tickets and all the rest of it. It was all postal stuff. Uh, there was no printing at home stuff back then and I watched that game I ended up in the club deck at Ibrox watching the replay uh, and again I'm going to do this from memory I'm going to say that Phil O'Donnell Willie Faulkner and Andy Walker scored that night mm-hmm. or did Andy Walker miss a penalty and John Collins scored that's all for memory but I remember that game against Hibs and Faulkner was important that night so yeah, it was all about the, the kind of value at that point. That's not the kind of players that we were expecting. Some of them done a, a fairly good job, others didn't. But let's let's be honest, Faulkner done a better shift than the likes of Wayne Biggins, for example, who's sure. the famous name or the infamous name that's mentioned around about the, the Lou McCary yeah. time. 
Um, but a guy on the bench as well that came on, Paul Byrne. I mean, I think he cost us about 90,000 quid. And again, he turned out to do reasonably well with Celtic. But we, we were we were buying bargain basement players. I mean, it was Brady that signed Paul Byrne. But we were, we were buying bargain basement players at that time. And Rangers, as I say, were, were buying back players like Trevor Stephen, who was an England international from Marseille. Duncan Ferguson was on the bench at that time. He was the most expensive Scottish to Scottish team player. They bought him for Dundee United for about four million quid. Four million. You know, they had the money. They, they just had that money. Whose money it was, I'm not sure. But they were certainly spending it anyway, Boise. Absolutely. And again, I mean, you're talking about the difference there in the subs. You bring on a £90,000 signing. We bring on a youth player like Brian McLaughlin. They bring on a two and a half million pound Alexi Michalichenko and a four million yeah. pound Duncan Ferguson. The funny thing about the Duncan Ferguson thing is, is that's, that's not biting doing, that's doubling doing because <laughs> that's just playing the exact same football all over again. Yeah, it's, that's not even mixing it up. He's just been brought in by to that replace Haley. Yep, complete hundred percent. And I find that fascinating. If and. Look, Walter Smith was a fantastic manager for Rangers. There's just no getting away from that and what he's achieved. Fair, right? No two ways. You know, he, he's not to blame for whatever tools he was given to do so. But there has to be also, if you're going to, you know, it, it, you know, look at everything sort of from a, a completely sort of neutral standpoint and go, what would have happened if you had, say, for example, I would think at that time, an upcoming innovate, what if they had someone and they could afford it a Roy Hodgson in charge at that time or someone of that ilk who gets given money like that and buys, I don't know, maybe players that wouldn't be described as clubbers by Paul on, on Screamer Celica. You know, I think uh, it's interesting that Smith obviously had a formula that he knew what. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, did end up sprinkling the old magic magic dust on it with the loud drops, gas coins or whatever and, and, you know, players who could play football. But undoubtedly, he had a go-to formula yeah right and that if it's not working with the with the with the, the sort of more ball playing players we just revert to type and we just get the ball long and I'm going to have players at the back who know how to win ugly and have players up front who know how to win ugly and it's very interesting to think with all the money that did get blown spent borrowed whatever it was that how that was spent we're talking about Scottish footballs Record transfer between clubs was for a like-for-like centre-forward who loves basically the equivalent of a square goal in the opposition box, you know, to, to win football matches. Mm-hmm. And I find that quite fascinating because we're buying guys with relatively minimal funds, let's be honest. I believe that Pat McGinley at this point in time actually lines up in the game having already been in talks with both Hibs and Motherwell about a transfer. So you're yeah. a surprise inclusion in the team. And you're going, that's a guy who's about to, you know, go to Hibs or Motherwell, who we need for a game against our fiercest rivals at Ibrox. That does tell me stuff from the outside looking in, looking back at it, that, you know, it, it was going to be an uphill battle. We were very much the underdogs for this game. Uh, you know, no two ways. The fan stuff disappoints me. I think that's petty, childish, and I think that's just, swinging about your you-know-what just for the sake of it. Do you know what I mean? I don't think there's any need for that other than to say I've got the power. You yeah. know, I think that's that's all that feels like to me. That's just an egotistical move. The plane going above saying hail, hail the Seltzer here uh, banner is fantastic because there's nothing he can do about that. For once, he did not have control 
of that certain moment situation. I think that's brilliant, you know, and that's done in good humour as well. Celtic fans not going down the road of you scumbags or whatever, do you know what I mean, for not letting us in. It's just all in that light-hearted way, which really does, I feel, wind up the other side the most that we can do that. You know, I think that's a brilliant thing. But all in all with the football, the vibe I got watching it back was Celtic had a determination and a drive to play football a certain way that seems to be embodied as part of Celtic, and I love that. And it was great to see even at a low, one of our lowest ebbs in our history, you probably could argue at this point in time, finishing fourth that season, I think, um, we had a team that still tried to play football the way we like to see it. Do you know what I mean? They were still doing that. Um, and I just like the fact as well that all we were up against really was a team that should be there were millions and millions of pounds in terms of value ahead of us in terms of expenditure by the club. And you had to resort to clubbing, as you would say, say to beat us. So I actually took quite a bit of satisfaction at watching the games. You know that I thought even then when people look back at that Lou McCarry era as a disaster, we went with three kids. We brought a £90,000 player, yep. you know, and we had a couple of maybe you would say SPL journeymen. You know, or, or SPL quality players, shall we say? Yeah. Maybe not. I don't want to be too hard. Um, and we went and and, and went to it all. So I took a lot of joy for that. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to the match, Paul, before we move on to music. Well, I think what you're saying there about the Stardust Rangers sprinkled a wee bit of that on their team from time to time. Celtic had very little of that around about this time. Paul McStay obviously doesn't line up for this particular game. No. John Collins was a special talent that we had. Pat McGinley, I always felt, uh, got a raw deal at Celtic. Uh, Tommy right. Burns th- didn't fancy him. and uh, Tommy Burns wanted Phil O'Donnell, who was one of the brightest sparks in Scottish football at the time. Yeah. So McGinley was sold to try and bring in some money for the, the Phil O'Donnell deal. But see, when you look at, you know, Hately, who was the player Duncan Ferguson was brought in to replace, Rangers signed him for Monaco. Before Monaco, he played for AC Milan. So we've got <laughs> Willie Faulkner up front, whose £175,000 payment uh, to Sheffield United almost bankrupted their club. And that's the two ends of the scale that you're dealing with. Man. Unbelievable disparity between the finances. If you jump ahead a wee bit and you talk about people like Basil Bowley, who had won the European Cup, in fact, he won the Champions League with Marseille, and that's a title that was not taken off in Marseille. The French league title was taken off in Marseille, they still officially won the Champions League. He'd won the Champions League with Marseille. Brian Loudrop, who was the third worst Loudrop in his household, but still not a bad player. And Paul Gascoigne. I wonder how many of those players were identified by Watersmith. We, we talk about the Celtic signing policy. I remember at that time, Paul Gascoigne was playing for Lazio, right? And Gazetta used to be on Channel 4. Loggers would have yeah. watched it. And let's admit it, Loggers used to watch it for Paul Gascoigne, right? So I remember his, his agent at that time was called Melstein. Mm-hmm. And Melstein yeah. was telling them about the teams that were interested. And when he mentioned Rangers, Gascoigne thought it was Queen's Park Rangers. He says, I'll go back to London, but not for Rangers. That, that was his response. <laughs> when he tells them that it's Glasgow Rangers... Every time that Paul Gascoigne mentions Glasgow Rangers, he calls them Glasgow. He just thinks they're called Glasgow. You know what I mean? 
I guess no. like Borussia Dortmund, you can just call them Dortmund. Right? You just call them Glasgow. His knowledge of what he was getting involved in was absolutely below zero. But how much of that contact was made by Walter Smith? Let's be honest. Come on. Mm-hmm. He wasn't ad- identifying Brian Loudrop. He wasn't identifying Paul Gascoigne. So David Murray was pulling the strings in a big, big way back then. And I think when you look at the, the second tenure of Walter Smith when he comes back to Rangers, look at his first two signings. David Weir, Hugo Egeog right back to the two big clubbers at the back. That that was his type of player. And by the way, they'd done a job for him. But that, that yeah. was his... One final point on the game. Adidas Predators, 1994 Originals, uh, designed by Craig Johnston, who played for Liverpool famously, but they signed him. He was an Australian. There you go, an Australian. Um, they signed him for Middlesbrough. And when he played for Middlesbrough, he says that Bobby Murdoch was a player that uh, he cleaned Bobby Murdoch's boots at Middlesbrough wow. so Craig wow. Johnston who went on to design the Predator football boot used to clean Bobby Murdoch's boots so there's their link there's always a tenuous always link always a link always there's a link, always a link. <laughs> fantastic that was good I enjoyed that so on to the music so it's quite an interesting one because I've sort of alluded to it on the old Twitter sphere that there's going to be a wee bit of a a background tale that I'm actually not privy to to be honest with you I don't know mm. it yet so I'm really looking forward to hearing it and it's obviously relates to the, you know, the amazing multimedia group that Paul's sort of at the forefront of that he's trying to develop right now and how the idea of the title came about. So that's going to be fascinating. So I thought we'll get mine out the roads first because I think it's more mainstream. I think it's the one that we can sort of surf over a wee bit easier. I did enjoy listening to it. Um, I got some good memories. It was uh, Nirvana's performance on the 1994 MTV Unplugged album mm-hmm. that was out around this time. Um, first thing that strikes me, how many people, Paul, and I know you're going to agree as I'm sure of it, think they can sing like Kurt Cobain, think it'll be easy. I know, I know. You, you see the thing with Cobain, right? And again, I remember that performance so, so well because I was yep. watching it thinking, that's some cardigan he's wearing. You know, that was a cracker. Yep. Where is it now? Who knows? But there's a brilliant documentary on on um, Kurt Cobain and uh, Courtney Love and I would recommend that anybody uh, watches it in relation to casting doubt over the, oh, the actual that. circumstances around it. It was at Nick Bloomfield, isn't it? Aye, the documentary Very maker. Good. And he was a talented, talented guy. But, you know, by the end, what annoys me about people like this is that it just ruined it for for smack. You know, and he did. You know, by the by the end, he was he was a, a horrible, horrible person. And it all came down to one thing, and that was his addiction. So on the one hand, um, I, I would implore everybody to deal with addiction from a compassionate view, viewpoint. But on the other hand, there is a selfishness to a lot of that when you are a world-renowned rock and roll star with millions of pounds and all the rest of it. Because a lot of these people that I've dealt with in the past, Russell, who fell into the, the, the gory, gory path of heroin addiction um, were a victim of the circumstances Kurt Cobain wasn't. Kurt Cobain was not a victim of circumstances. And he was a, a, a uniquely talented individual um, who threw it all away. And is he part of the 27 Club? Yes. Yes. But that performance, I think, goes down as the iconic performance, not only of Cobain, but of Nirvana. And it was the MTV Unplugged when that was a massive deal to be part yep. of the MTV Unplugged. Um, and it's up there, I think, even with the Oasis version of the Unplugged is one of my favourite Unplugged sessions. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, like I say about the voice, when you're listening to it on a good set of headphones and you're going, do you know what? It's singing from his soul. Like, you know, it, it's really, really good uh, vocals on it. First song about a girl, I also found it quite... I love stuff like it's like trying to find out the personality behind the music. So it opens up by saying something along the lines of, this song is called out about a girl that's from her first album. You probably wouldn't have heard of it. So there's almost like he's got a, you know, like a vulnerability to him or like a, he's self-deprecating sort of side to him, you know. Everyone's going to know about a girl. What are you talking about? Especially at Nirvana Unplugged crowd. Do you know what I mean? Who's not going to know it from their first album? And I just think instantly coming down, like coming out and saying that, it's such, it was a cult show at the time MTV Unplugged as well. It's a big moment, this. And yet he's already, you know, sort of criticising himself, slagging himself off a wee bit. And I found that quite interesting. You know, it's not it's not that not that boldness you would expect from a multi-million pound record artist. Do you know what I mean? You just would you would expect a wee bit more confidence in the in, in your own songs. And it's straight away, I just found that quite an interesting insight. Anyway. Absolutely. We have to, we have to discuss. I mean, this could be a show in itself, the best covers of all time. But it's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio is a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. The cover of Man Who Sold the World, I think, is uh, I mean, just an incredible version that completely removes itself from David Bowie. And I'm a huge David Bowie fan, as you know. I've got his mm-hmm. tattoo in my arm and all that. I'm absolutely obsessed with And yet I can't help but just hear that version and just like doff the cap straight away and go, it's brilliant. He captures a different vibe of the song, or he just captures the real vibe and just projects it differently. I don't know. But he makes you think when he's when that song's on differently to how you feel about the song when you hear David Bowie's version. David Bowie's version to me, I there's sort of dark connotations in it, but I still think it's almost it's not comedy, but the ding 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 it's like almost like sounds like quite Spiky, punchy on David Bowie's one and quite poppy. The difference with Nirvana's version is this has now became like a song all about, you know, oh, I don't even know what it's about, but it's like, it's, it's changed like the whole outlook of it. And he's, he's singing songs like that are now turning into, you know, what have I became? Who am I? You know, and I had it all. I've blown it all. I'm the guy who sold the world. And then like you just touched on there, he did have it all. Yep. And shows off. And you start joining all these dots, Paul, and you start going, This is insane. This song's grown arms and legs. I have to be honest, that one, as soon as it finished, I just skipped back and just played it again because I went, That was incredible. Mm-hmm. But 
when it comes to MTV Unplugged, there's something about that show, particularly the 90s versions, I just think you know you're watching it straight away. It had that sort of uh, logo that was a bit like the Friends sort of logo, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and it was aye. Aye. like the central and perk guy. Ah, you're right. Aye, and it was quite iconic just for the very get go. Yeah, um, it was. And then I just think Kurt Cobain at that point showed the other side to him that would have allowed Nirvana to go from grunge rock band with a lot of hardcore fans, like millions, to there's the crossover. It was a genius move from doing that gig because then you get guys probably like myself if I was around then going, actually, do you know what? They're good. I've never gave the, I never gave them a chance enough, and I've got to say as well, the acoustic bass on "Come as You Are" is absolutely outstanding, and has a haunting feel to it. Real atmosphere. It is an outstanding live album that I highly recommend. Yeah, there's there's a few things coming to my mind here, Russell, mm-hmm. and I'm going to come across probably as if I'm just a rip-off merchant. So a State of Minds <laughs> logo, if you look in the top left, that wee spark is basically inspired by, the, the one in the A is inspired by Bowie's Aladdin Sane cover. Yep. So big Bowie fan, that's my dad's influence. Uh, Ziggy Stardust album was... The Rise and Fall was just constantly on rotation in my house, uh, the vinyl as I was growing up. Uh, MTV Unplugged, well, we've set up a state of mind unplugged and it basically yep. is a rip-off version of that show where um, you and I have been booking a lot of bands in over the last week. We've got 19 bands in a diary. We've also oh, had some brilliant bands already. Uh, Brute Comb, if you've not watched that, I'm going to plug it. Because it's unplugged, so let's plug it, right? <laughs> Brute, Brute Comb. Um, and also, a funny wee thing there, just when I was thinking about a song that wasn't played, I don't think, on the Unplugged session for Nirvana, was Smells Like Teen Spirit. And uh, the video of that, right, I, I convinced myself that the the shirt, he's wearing a shirt over a long sleeve top, right? If you can remember the video, I don't know if you mm-hmm. can, I think it's in a basketball arena or something like that, right? And I, I remember watching it because MTV was massive back then and that, that yeah. would take me on to my album as well. And I was thinking to myself, it was basically black and green hoops that he was wearing. And I That's thought right. that would make a great Celtic away strip, right? So again, I pill for everything. And there was a Celtic view competition to design a new away kit, right? Around about the time of the game we've just spoken about and I sent in my version and I based it on Kurt Cobain's green and black Brilliant. hoops, right? And it's, it got printed in the Celtic View. I've got a copy of that, if you want to dig that out for the 1990s. So basically what I'm trying to say is I just steal for other people. Um, anything that I think looks good, I'll just have a bit of that. Um, but you're right, when somebody takes a cover and makes it their own, that's yep. a very, very t- difficult thing to do. I, I mean, mean, especially when it was a song that was already a great song. There's a lot of songs that you hear and you think, wow, I, I prefer that to the original. You, you sometimes get that vibe as well. Um, but the other thing that I loved was that uh, Cobain was a big Teenage Fan Club fan. Now, Teenage Fan Club, wow. you know, they, they're a Scottish band for Bells Hill. Big Celtic fans. Uh, Paul Quinn, the drummer, has been on a Celtic state of mind as well. And uh, they, they were big in America to such a point where De La Soul collaborated with Teenage Fan Club. But Kurt Cobain was a big fan the fan club, you know, or the fannies, as uh, we call them. And I, I was a, t- I was a fanny because I was a fan. So <laughs> you were, all, you were all right to call yourself a fanny if you're a Danish <laughs> fan club fan. Uh, and and Cobain was into them as well. So, I great memories. I just hate seeing talented people in any walk of life, you know, just throwing it all away. And he did. He was the man that sold the world. A good way of rounding that up, Paul. Over to you. 
Well, I've already told you I'm a pilferer. Um, if I see something good, scream a celica, I'll nick that for scream a delica. As, you know, it goes on and on and on. Um, and, uh, you know, when we decided we were going to do a song from this time, or sorry, an album, I picked the album and then I realised all the different links to that album. But I had to ask myself, Boise, why was I listening to hip-hop from New York in 1994? And I had to figure this out in my mind. So it goes back a few years. I was listening to a lot of hip-hop around about that time. Um, but when I think in 1994, I think of Oasis. You know, yep. and I'm like, and I'm thinking of Blur, and I'm thinking of The Verve, and I'm thinking of all these bands, right? Um, but I figured it out. The reason I was listening to hip-hop in 1994 was basically Boys in the Hood the movie and that came out in 1991 and that was a film right that me and my mates at the time um, were absolutely hooked on it we must have watched it 30 or 40 times mate it was always on Boys in the Hood and who was in Boys in the Hood but Ice Cube Ice Cube was in Boys in the Hood that took me back to NWA which introduced me to Dr Dre which introduced me to Snoop Dogg, and that's how I got into hip-hop in in, and around that time. It was through the film Boys in the Hood. So Nas came round in 1994, but from 1991, which was Boys in the Hood, I got into Dr. Dre, as I've just said there, Ice Cube, NWA, Dr. Dre. It's easy to just, like, join the dots. And Dr. Dre's 1992 album, The Chronic, again became a staple part in my soundtrack around about that time. And in particular, the song Ain't Nothing But A G Thing, which he did with Snoop Dogg. Mm-hmm. Uh, that then led me on to the album that Dr. Dre produced the following year, 1993's Doggy Style by Snoop Doggy Dog. And we all know that Snoop Doggy Dog's a Celtic fan as well, so everything comes back to Celtic. Oh, and some of the songs on that particular LP were things like Gin and Juice, uh, mm-hmm. Murder Was a Case, brilliant documentary on that as well, Lodi Doddy and Ain't No Fun. Now, this then takes us up to the following year. And in the meantime, I was getting into other things because the whole East Coast, West Coast thing didn't interest me. Why would it? You know, I lived in uh, the West the Five Villages of Fife. Why would I care about East Coast and West Coast and the rivalry? I just love the music, right? East so, Five, West Five. East Five, West Five. Yeah, there you go. Aye. East Five, West Five. I like that. East, East Five versus Dunfermline. Um, so I also loved 1993's uh, Wu-Tang Clan debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, and in particular, a song called Tears uh, and I've got to thank David Trainer for introducing me to that one if he's listening which he probably is not because he's not really into football but he was into music so it was like Boys in the Hood Dr Dre Snoop Dogg Wu-Tang Clan and that took me on to Nas and Nas's album was Illmatic now I wouldn't say it sounds like the the previously mentioned albums, um, there's more of a kind of like, there's a kind of dark element to Nazi's debut album. He came through the projects in New York and uh, the, the album was released on the 19th of April, 1994. Uh, but the second track on that album is Because I Am The Master Pilferer, NY State of Mind, which was the um, the inspiration be- behind the name A Celtic State of Mind and of course A State of Mind. So that's, where my, you know, Brilliant. kind of theft is at its best, where I'm just nicking other people's ideas. Um, so what interested me, though, when I'm looking back on this album, is that it was released eight days after Oasis released their debut single. 
and their debut single was of course Supersonic and I've got to admit I didn't hear Supersonic when it came out I heard Shaker Maker when that came out didn't buy it and then it was Live Forever that really got me hooked on Oasis and then the album came out and then I started backtracking on the albums and all the rest of it but leading up to that Hooked on Elmatic by Naz. It's an album I still listen to regularly coming into the studio. Um, and I've recently watched the documentary that was made a few years ago called Time is Elmatic. Recommend it. Absolutely stunning film. All about his uh, background, his upbringing, and how he managed to basically escape the projects in New York through this album. This album saved his life, mate absolutely saved his life and they're looking they go back to speak to his brother his dad was like a jazz musician mm -hmm. his dad plays on the album mate his dad plays on Elmatic it's oh. incredible right I think he plays trumpet on it um, and his brother is obviously not moved out of the projects so they go back to his upbringing in, in the street which appears on the front cover of the album and all that his brother still lives there and you can tell like during the interview that his brother's had a few sherries and he's drinking during it so you know Naz is able to escape but his brother isn't he's still in there he's still party everything that goes on but they're looking at this picture that they did a photo shoot for I think it was probably for the the gatefold, goal, gatefold sleeve the album and there's loads and loads of people all just sitting around and it's just guys for the street Russell and they're going through them like, he's dead he's doing life he's you know all this kind of stuff but he escaped through writing this album it saved his life absolutely saved his life Almatic by Naz and it inspired a Celtic state of mind and that's where that came from that's I lovely. then moved on I, I, I did a bit of the old uh, Tupac Shakur Notorious B.I.G., which I loved, loved all that kind of stuff. But Oasis dragged me back into the kind of traditional rock, indie kind of vibe. And then it was from there that I started getting into, um, you know, I got into Oasis because we were waiting on the Stone Roses coming out with our second album. It took five years. I loved the Stone right. Roses. Got into the Verve, got into Blur, got into Supergrass, went to a lot of live music. And from there, never really got back into the hip hop, but I still appreciate it. Um, and I still really? love Nas. Nas hasn't had a bad album yet. Absolute genius. Genius songwriter. See, with regards to the state of mind, so what I wanted to ask was, obviously, when that album's came out, you're not going to know you're going to be doing this, you know, X amount of years later, 17 years later, right? Did you have an idea, though, that you liked that title enough that you were going to you were going to have a note of it somewhere that that might come in handy one day, that title. I like that title. Or was it something that because you listened to the Nas album, you revisited it around the time that you were setting up the estate of mind sort of uh, company that you, that, that you went, ah, that would actually work for what my current plan is. Because obviously they're miles apart, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, see, the big thing, Russell, that I do, and this is it's partly sad, but it's also the way that I work is, and it was probably when I was getting my folio together for art college, you had to keep uh, sketchbooks, right? And I kept that up, but no, we sketch. It was just like notes and journals and all that kind of stuff. And you then refer back to them when you're writing books and whatever you're doing. It could be a turn of phrase. It could be a particular word that resonates mm -hmm. with you. But I always write down wee phrases. And I remember writing a Celtic state of mind 
So the NY state of mind thing was always kind of prevalent. I wrote down a Celtic state of mind many, many years before the, the podcast came along. And it's written in one of these journals. I mean, I've got two sitting on my table. I'm always, always, everything. It's not a diary. It's just plans, to-do lists, all this kind of stuff. And I've always done it. If it's written down, it's going to happen, basically, because I, until that's scored off, you know, the job has to be done. Um, so it was in there, and it was in one of the journals. And the journal will be in my wee office in the house in amongst 50 or 60. And then... It's bizarre though because you take these things to interviews. So I've got like my very first interview that I did with an ex Celtic player. It's all dated, and all my questions are all written down. It's all still there, and it's right. brilliant. It's great to refer back to them. The one thing I would say also about that album, I mentioned the Stone Roses. What I loved about them was the the fact that each of the individuals had such an identity all of their own. So, you know, John Squire went on that whole Led Zeppelin kind of vibe for the second coming album. But Ian Brown was into hip hop. He was into yeah. reggae. He was into all that kind of stuff. And I wonder, I wonder if he was into this album because there's a song in it called The World Is Yours. And uh, later on, Ian mm-hmm. Brown released a 2007 LP called The World Is Yours. But, yeah. but key... The key one, right, I want you to listen to this, Boise, even though you, you may or may not like the, the album. There's a song on Illmatic called Half Time. The drum beat, the drum beat, I, I, and I'm no joking you, right, the drum beat is exactly the same as Can't See Me from Ian Brown's debut album of 1998. So yes. you're only talking four years later. Now, the, the reason I'm saying this, right, is it's an absolute lift from Illmatic. But Ian Brown credits that drum beat to Rennie on the debut album but Rennie has since admitted that he never played that he's never even heard it he, he did not play that and I, so I think what, what Brown is trying to do is this is an original drum beat but you know what I think it's a sample so what you should do right listen to Half Time by Nas and then listen to Can't yeah. See Me by Ian Brown a song that I absolutely love by the way and it, I'm no joking you there's a wee bit of pilfering in there but you know what I like a bit of pilfering myself <laughs> so I don't, I don't I don't mind that you know what I mean but aye massive the, the Celtic state of mind thing I love it and how often Boise you listen to a song and they use the terminology a state of mind it's a state of mind Nina That's Cherry right. Buffalo Stance no totally uh, Richard Ashcroft uh, Richard Ashcroft New York he says at yeah. the end are you tuning in <laughs> it's a state of mind. That's unbelievable. That's what he said. You know what I mean? Brilliant. Brilliant. We, need, we need to edit that and get that as an advert. You know, what I mean, you could just get that wee snippet. Speak to Tricky Dicky and see if we can get that as a wee snippet. Are we the, talking uh, about Ashcroft or Stephen? Tricky oh, Dicky, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, it has been a great show, but it's been around around ten minutes nearly. So we're venturing into. Uh, Kevin Graham and Boise territory now, so I won't we're let you go. On extra time. Going. We're almost an extra time, mate. That's it. That's it. Thanks once again to Paul John Dykes for stepping in for Kev. My name's been Boise. This has been Screamer Celica. Like, subscribe, and calm down. <laughs> <laughs>
As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.